Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are going to move on to a mini-series on the Apocrypha. I'm not sure how many episodes this series will be, but it is a heavily requested series. We did one episode of it way back when, and, well, looking back, let's just say uh, we didn't do the topic justice. So before we begin, I just want to say that Christ is the Cure is listener-supported. If you have been blessed by Christ is the Cure... Uh, please check out patreon.com forward slash Christ of the Cure and consider becoming a part of the support team. And if you are part of the support team, you will have graphics and charts and a PDF that correspond with the apocryphal episodes that can act as cheat sheets as you look at the information and save you um, some note-taking, which, by the way, um, you may want to get a pen and paper for these episodes because... Yeah, we're going to be turning on a fire hose. So, we're just going to jump right into it. So, the Apocrypha. The term Apocrypha means hidden things. Uh, but this shouldn't be noted as something like suspicious or hidden for a good reason, uh, which is something that Protestants tend to uh, think of them as. Uh, and at the same time, progressives will treat the Apocrypha as if they are a conspiracy. Did you know... Uh, Christians removed these books. They don't want you to know the truth and all that good stuff. And yet Protestants treat them as if they are a gateway to Rome, and Rome treats them as if they are a checkmate for authority. And Eastern Orthodoxy, well, well, for the West, Eastern Orthodoxy is just kind of there. But more or less, they do the same thing as Rome. So we are discussing the Old Testament Apocrypha, and we'll discuss what it is. Uh, and it's worth discussing because it's the great dividing line when it comes to Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism. And it's more important in terms of Catholicism because Catholicism is really the the force to be reckoned with for Western Christians, if you put it bluntly. And they will often validate their authority as a church by appealing to the canon. So we can begin this whole discussion by actually pointing out that the New Testament Apocrypha, or Pseudepigrapha, or the New Testament Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, were never accepted as canonical, which makes this discussion of their status and their position really easy. So let's talk about, let's back up a little bit and talk about uh, canon. What is canon? Well, canon are those works that are God-breathed, that are inspired by God and given to the church for the core doctrines of faith, uh, for revelation, and for authenticating the Christian truths. That's probably the best way I can put it there. So canon, a book that is canonical, is inspired by God. A book that is non-canonical is a book that's not inspired by God. And we'll talk a little bit about why that term can be anachronistic, looking back at the early church in a little bit. So like I just said, uh, the New Testament Apocrypha, or Pseudepigrapha, uh, such as, you know, the missing Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, other uh, random works, aren't really a point of contention between Catholicism or Anglicanism, Protestantism, or, you know, just name a group, because they were universally rejected within the Christian church. And so our discussion focuses on what is called the Old Testament Apocrypha, or if you're a Catholic, it's Deuterocanonical or Deuterocanon, and... These are those quote-unquote additional or missing books of the Bible, depending on which Bible you presuppose. So this is where the battle is. What constitutes the Old Testament canon, and whether or not these extra books are added or removed, added to the Catholic Bible or removed from Protestant Bibles? Ultimately, both sides greatly exaggerate, simplify, and find themselves looking at the Apocrypha through polemical lenses, resulting ultimately, as a Protestant, I can say this, in a poor appreciation of these works in general. Just as well, there are verses that seemingly support Roman Catholic doctrine in the Apocrypha, uh, such as you know praying for the dead or alms as a means of atonement, uh, but usually those are greatly exaggerated. And... Really, the villainization of the Apocrypha is a horrible plight on modern Protestantism. And if you noticed, I qualified that with modern Protestantism 
because these books in the early Protestant circles of the Reformation all saw these books as useful for edification, just non-canonical. So while I reject the Apocrypha from the canon, I believe that Protestants are in good company with many church fathers and can still find edification in these works in the same manner as other works that are penned throughout church history. So here we will discuss what the Apocrypha is, we'll look at its history, and then we'll look at why Protestants shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater by looking over each book of the Apocrypha, summarizing its contents, and how it influenced the New Testament and the early church, if it did. So what is the Old Testament Apocrypha? Well, the Apocrypha, or again, sometimes called the Deuterocanonical Books by Catholics and Orthodox, are a collection of Jewish literature from the Second Temple Period, or during what is called the Intertestamental Period, or otherwise called the 400 Years of Silence. So essentially that time between the Old and New Testament, that's where these writings come from. They come from Palestine, Alexandria, Antioch, and some were originally written in Greek. Others were written in Hebrew and Aramaic and then translated into Greek. And ultimately, these books deal quite a bit with what it meant to be a faithful Jew or follower of God under the Mosaic Covenant in the midst of this power struggle of various empires and cultures. And so these writings spoke to the Jews in the midst of various empires seeking domination over the area. And in particular, we find Hellenization being addressed, and that is the spread or deep influence of Greek culture. So before we get further, I just want to say that as we get into the historical texts where I make citations, um, I would point you to the book by John Mead and Edmund Gallagher called The Biblical Canon List from Early Christianity Text and Analysis. It's the best $20 I have ever spent. Um, it saved me a lot of time having to look up the original texts and translations uh, individually because they're all collected in one book of various canonical lists, um, ranging from the Greek church to the Latin church to Syriac. I did not include every analysis, but I did include a good amount. Uh, and just as well, introducing the Apocrypha by De Silva will be cited here quite a bit too because it was helpful. And... The New Oxford Annotated Apocrypha was also another resource worth picking up. It's a translation of just the Apocrypha. You can get it with the Bible or without the Bible, but it has introductions for each book that was also consulted, along with um, Philip Schaff's Church History, uh, Nick Needham, of course, and stuff like that. But really, the, the key for wading through the Historical citations will be having a resource like Mead's book uh, because it, it is a task to hunt them down. And I did include citations and stuff that you will have to hunt down that are not in this book, but that's just the way it goes. I'm glad I picked this one up, though. Anyway, so what this literature contains are some historical accounts with various theological and cultural themes uh, in the period, again, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So first Ezra's, for example, speaks to the events found in Ezra and Nehemiah. First and second Maccabees accounts for the period of 175 to 167 BC. And all four of the books of Maccabees speak particularly of Jewish identity in the midst of Hellenization. Within the Apocrypha, there are also various wisdom literatures, uh, similar to what you would expect, you know, in Proverbs. And so we have Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, and so I'll be referring to that as the Wyndham of Ben Sirah, or Sirach, and that is a collection from an influential Jewish writer from the 2nd century BC, considered a uh, rabbinical sage named Jesus, Ben Sirah, that is, son of Sirah. So I'll be referring to that as Sirach most often, sometimes Ben Sirah, whenever I'm talking about the author. Uh, and so this was a very popular work that occurred right before Hellenization that is very similar to Proverbs in terms of its style, but not exactly on point. Uh, just as well, there's the Wisdom of Solomon, which speaks to the values of the Jews in Torah in the midst of Greek culture. And, um, quote, Of all the Apocrypha, Sirach and Wisdom, together with 2 Maccabees 6-7, through have had the most widespread influence on the Christian writers of the first six or seven centuries of the Church, and hence also on the exposition of Christian theology. And that's from... De Silva's Introducing the Apocrypha. And then we have works like the Book of Tobit, which is a tale of Jewish piety outside of Jerusalem, and then Judith, 
preserves a tale regarding a female military hero. And third, Maccabees, which is a tale, it's not historical, speaks of a trial of Jews in Alexandria. We'll actually go through all the contents and summarize them in more detail, but here we're just kind of outlining them. The Apocrypha also contains Greek expansions in Esther and Daniel, um, because the Greek translations of these books are longer. And Esther's expansion is one of a broader theological and religious concern in that it adds explicit references to God in it, where Esther did not have those previously. While Daniel's expansions, uh, Susanna and Belden the Dragon, speak of Daniel's wisdom in his discussion against idols. Additionally, there is the prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Jews found in the expansion of Daniel, and then the prayer of Manasseh and Psalm 151, which, of course, makes up an additional psalm to the Jewish Psalter. In the Apocrypha, we also find additions to Jeremiah, uh, Barak, and the letter of Jeremiah. And then there is also a fourth Maccabees. Um, the additions in Jeremiah focuses on idolatry, and then fourth Maccabees focuses on Jewish martyrs. Lastly, second Esdras, which Ezra is a, another way of saying Ezra, is a work written around AD 95-96, and it's an um, apocalyptic discussion on the problem of evil, or otherwise called uh, theodicy. So, broadly defined then, um, in defining the Apocrypha, we find the widest understanding of the Apocrypha in terms of Protestant convictions consisting of Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, Barak, Letter of Jeremiah, additions to Daniel, 1st through 4th Maccabees, 1st to 2nd Esdras, Prayer of Manasseh, and Psalm 151. Now the Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Slavonic Orthodox churches disagree about which of these books are included and excluded to one degree or another. So we can just survey that real quick. Let me find my handy-dandy chart that if you are a patron you have access to. Um, so whenever we look down this list, we ultimately find that the disagreement is that Orthodox hold to 3rd Maccabees and 1st Esdras while holding to the prayer of Manasseh and Psalm 151, while Roman Catholics reject those and also reject 2nd Esdras. Now, Esdras becomes a little bit tricky, but we'll discuss that later. So back to the broad discussion, this literature would not only be well known in the culture of Jesus's time, uh, but many of the writings would be continued to be read, quoted, recited, uh, post AD 70 after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the New Testament authors and early Christians viewed these texts as writings that were beneficial regardless of one's idea of their place in the canon. So this is a consistent historical picture, and that's what we see with Protestants in the Reformation, that these were beneficial in some shape or form. Quoting De Silva, the evidence for the influence on the New Testament and the early church fathers will astound those who are accustomed to thinking of the Apocrypha as worthless or dangerous. The measure of their usefulness is attested also by their inclusion in the major Christian manuscripts of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So usually, this Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the LXX or Septuagint. But the term is often misleading and can lead to a lot of miscommunication on this whole topic in general. The term typically denotes a body of ancient Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. Lehner and Ross point out, quote, it can be used in various senses depending on context. The initial effort and result of translating the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, or the translation of all the books of the Hebrew Bible, including some later revisions, or the collection of Greek writings that include translations of the Hebrew books, as well as additional writings known as the Apocrypha. So you have those three categories, which makes using the Septuagint as a singular book that's finalized kind of difficult. So the Septuagint should be understood as a Greek textual tradition, and in its most strict sense denotes the Jewish translation of the first five books of Moses, right? Uh, and that occurred around 250 BC. This is because of how prominent the Greek language uh, was amongst the Jews in Alexandria. And then after this initial translation, there would be further translations of the Hebrew Bible, uh, such as the prophets and the writings, which would eventually be complete, along with various editions from Hellenistic and Roman periods. So important is that the process of a finalized, collected Septuagint wouldn't be seen until around the 4th or 5th century AD when Christians collected the Old Testament. Here we'll just uh, quote De Silva again, and he says, quote, The only evidence for 
The expanded canon comes from the 4th and 5th century Christian community. Indeed, 2nd century Jews moved away from the tradition of the Septuagint version of the scriptures in favor of the more recent, more officially sanctioned Greek translations by Jewish scholars such as Aquila and Theodosian. These translations were limited to those books included in the Hebrew canon and thus did not include the books of the Apocrypha, although Theodosian's Daniel does include additions to that book. The Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox canons of the Old Testament represent basically the Septuagint collection reflected in these early Christian codices, that is, the book form of manuscripts, while the Protestant Old Testament has returned to the consensus of early rabbinic Judaism concerning the limits of Scripture. So, as alluded to earlier, defining a strict understanding of the Apocrypha, or deuterocanonical books, is found to be difficult when it comes to Christendom. And we will demonstrate this as well whenever we look at the history of the Apocrypha. Furthermore, in great early Christian Bibles, or manuscripts, or codices, that contain Jewish literature outside of the Hebrew canon, we find different collections of the Apocrypha. They don't all agree with one another. Yet, even where these codices agree, it should not be assumed that because materials were translated into Greek or collected into these manuscripts, that they were automatically deemed canonical. This is something that comes up quite often, but really, there were many works that were seen as non-canonical that were included in these great manuscripts of Christendom, such as the Shepherd of Hermas in the New Testament, which all branches agree is not canonical. This is important because it is sometimes stated that because Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus have some books of the Apocrypha, they must be considered canonical. But that's not what we see. We see basically Christians having these books in collections for the sake of ease, if anything else, especially given the production of books back when. And again, it's worth mentioning that between these codices, there is not the same list. So as we press into history um, and the canonicity of the Apocrypha, there are three points worth addressing. First point, canon was not so strictly defined within the context of the early church as we would hope to find it. So in fact, the language we find often is in covenanted, acknowledged, accepted, undisputed, recognized, and so forth. And so texts could be seen as quote-unquote canonical in the sense of being included for the sake of edification and instruction, but not on the same level as scripture or inspired. And so that becomes confusing for us because we see canon as this is what it is, but back then it was a little bit more loose. We will see this appear in our discussion on several um, points, but with that said, we will use canonical here in the contemporary sense. So whenever I say canonical, I mean inspired and of the highest authority of the text, but I will also discuss where Christian authors made distinctions. Point number two, the Jewish Bible does carry weight. Uh, so when speaking to those who advocate for the Apocrypha, it is often said that we cannot trust the Jewish canon because the rabbinic tradition was against Christianity. Um, that's basically how it goes. Why would you trust the Jews who were against the Christian church? Why would you accept their canon? And I think the answer is quite obvious, aside from the fact that we have historical figures seeking to find out what the Hebrew canon was, the Hebrew canon was first and foremost the canon of the Jews. Whenever we consider this context of works predominantly occurring within a time period before Jesus, this is significant because it's not like we're talking about Gnostic texts or pseudo-Christian writers that the Jews included in their canon or anti-Christian writing that they included in their canon. Rather, we're talking about the canon that the Jews understood to be the Hebrew Bible. So when speaking about those texts that the Jews knew before the time of Christ, with the rare exceptions such as Third Esdras, we should take their view seriously. The value of the Jewish canon of the Old Testament is important here, just as it is important for the Christian New Testament canon against other texts like the Gnostic New Testament canon. So they knew their Bibles, they knew their canon, and we should heed that. And then point number three, when we look at the numbering of the Old Testament canon, we typically think of 39 books. However, the Old Testament books were counted in a way that's a little bit different, and it led to numbers between 22 to 27 books. 22 was the most common designation, with 24 being the second most common, as far as I can tell. So how this work can be demonstrated by considering this. So we have 1st and 2nd Kings as two books. Well, they wouldn't combine it to one book. And you can say the same about the collection of Solomon, or you can say the same about 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But most significant were the Minor Prophets. We count as 12 books, while the Jews considered them as the 12, and they were counted as one book. 
And so whenever we talk about the Hebrew canon, you often see counts that are like, wait, if we're talking about the Hebrew canon, why, why is there only 22 books and not 39? Well, that's the reason. The counting was a little bit different. Just as well, whenever we're talking about all this, how the books were arranged, categorized, and things like that, we're not concerned about that here. We are more concerned about which books are included in the list at all. So let's talk about canon and the history of the Apocrypha. So here we begin the discussion around the history of the Apocrypha and its relation to the canon. And so the first note is that the reason why this collection of texts is the center of these debates is because it was a body that was held onto and preserved carefully when other literature simply was not. There was value to this literature. So the Apocrypha, historically and undoubtedly, was set apart from other literature, including those works of the Pseudepigrapha, such as Enoch, which is often mistaken as apocryphal by Protestants. For Catholics, Enoch's go into the apocryphal category because, again, they consider our definition of apocrypha as deuterocanonical, second canon. And whenever they say second canon, they mean chronologically not an authority. And that term came around the 16th century. So our second note is that the concept of canonicity, again, meaning a closed set of authoritative books, is somewhat um, difficult because it would come about later on, specifically within the 4th century for Christians. So prior to this understanding, books were denoted as sacred writings or the scriptures, or whether or not the books were holy in a way that others were not. And this is significant because for Christians, uh, the New Testament was still being formed. And so canonicity was still, you know, kind of, I don't want to say up in the air, that sounds bad, but it was still a question because progressive revelation was still occurring via the apostles and the accounts of Jesus. So following De Silva's helpful observations, and he stated that the use of a work does not make it canonical nor is every authoritative work canonical. So I want to flesh these things out because these are important. To the former, we see that books such as First Enoch are quoted in Jude, yet they are regarded by non-canonical by every major tradition in Christendom. That's important. The book is quoted, but it's considered non-canonical, such as the Assumption of Moses uh, in Jude. Just as well, pagan writers are cited by Paul, but they are also non-canonical. So essentially, Paul and Jude found whatever material they used to be a good resource for their intended purposes and the goal of their texts. To the latter, that is that not every book that is authoritative is canonical, we find that books can have authority in communities without being considered inspired. We as Protestants have this same sense with our principle of sola scriptura, where the scriptures are the only inspired rule of faith, while the tradition of ancient creeds are important and and many traditions, the confessions of Protestantism are considered authoritative in one sense or another. This is the case in the early period as well. We find the commentary on the Holy Text, such as the Mishnah and the Talmud, excuse me, Talmud, to be authoritative for Jewish communities among the rabbis, but they were not canonical. We see this in, in various instances. The, this, these two ideas need to be front and center, though. You can have something that's edifying and authoritative, but not inspired by God, and just as well, you can have something that's cited by an inspired writer without saying that that work that is cited is inspired itself. An additional observation of De Silva worth pointing out is the misconception that there was a wholesale wider Alexandrian canon compared to that in Palestine. Uh, this notion becomes polemical, and it's kind of an oversimplification. Uh, it's either it means to you know, villainize Alexandra to justify the Hebrew canon or um, an appeal to Jewish people recognizing other books within Alexandria. Often this analysis becomes far too simplistic. Um, and whenever you start looking at some of these writers who rejected the Apocrypha, it doesn't become sensical, such as Athanasius, an Eastern writer. That, in fact, Athanasius of Alexandria, who rejected the Apocrypha. And often this discussion on the Alexandrian canon and the Palestinian kind of comes back to how people understand the word Septuagint uh, and how they understand these collections in the Septuagint. But regardless, we, we ultimately find that things such as Philo, he's a Jewish commentator of Alexandria who never quotes from the Apocrypha. Instead, he focuses on the Torah and other texts that would be considered part of the Jewish canon. Um, so regardless. So let's begin our historical survey. Um, so there, there has been some discussion on a so-called Council of uh, Jamnia in AD 90, but whether or not this was actually a council is heavily debated. 
and usually seen in, insignificant by by most people, to be honest, it seems like. But ultimately, what we find here is that there was a discussion around the canonical status of a couple books, uh, namely Esther, and the the council or the group of scholars reaffirmed the Hebrew canon with the exception of Esther. And Esther seems to have been debated even until the 3rd century among the Jews. And you see this in our list as we will go down that road, because Esther, again, has no explicit reference to uh, God, which which makes made it subject as an inspired work. And this was not just the position of the Jews. This was also a contention for the Christians. So let's begin with Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian, very important for um, understanding the time around Jesus' life and a little bit after. And Josephus indicates that in the time of the first century, there was minimally a conception of a closed canon forming, as Josephus states, quote, For we have only 22 books which contains the records of all the pastimes which are justly believed to be divine. Josephus limits the Jewish canon to 22 books, uh, which is said to be explained, and again, that the 12 minor prophets were counted to be all one scroll, along with Ezra and Nehemiah being counted as one book, um, and Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles being considered one book, and so forth. Furthermore, though, Josephus says that there are only 22 books in the Jewish collection, and he contrasts this to the Greeks who have many books. Now, Josephus, as a historian, with his writing dating to roughly AD 93-94, was no doubt pulling from earlier sources, and he speaks as this is a matter of fact. Interestingly, the apocryphal work of 2nd Esdras also states that there are 24 books held sacred. Um, and so these two authors could be referring to the same collections, but other theories are possible. From here we find rabbis um, almost considering the book of Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, and Barak as canonical, but ultimately they were seen as having authority, but authority that was lower than scripture. Um, so they debated those texts, and they still determined them as non-canonical. And we'll talk a little bit about why that was later on. So other works of the Apocrypha continue to influence Jews, uh, such as Maccabees and Judith, because of their history, especially concerning Hanukkah. But ultimately, our Old Testament canon is what the Jewish people landed on as their canon. And we find this confirmed by the Babylonian Talmud, which assumes the Torah and follows the canon we know in our Protestant Old Testament with Josephus. So for the early church, with the pinning of the New Testament, the idea of a close canon was a bit later to be found, as we mentioned. But before moving past the apostles, we can discuss the New Testament a little bit and its relationship to the Apocrypha. So first, we cannot ignore the fact that there are many allusions and parallels with the Apocrypha and the New Testament. In fact, Protestants tend to downplay this. That said, there needs to be recognition, again, of the difference between a quotation and a reference of a divine text. Within the New Testament, there are allusions, phrases, lines of argumentations, and so forth from the Apocrypha. But there is never an explicit attention drawn to the Apocrypha works, nor are they cited in a way that is particularly authoritative. Meaning, while other Hebrew canon is introduced as it is written, so the scripture says, you know, thus says the Lord, the Apocrypha never enjoys this privilege. And so while that is said, we, we simply cannot ignore the reality that Jesus and his contemporaries were part of their culture, they knew and utilized these texts as we would expect one to do. We utilize our texts in our culture to make our cases, to make our points, and we take what's good and we throw away what's bad, right? Um, and so you see that. Even Jesus' words himself have parallels with Ben Sirah or Sirach saying in some instances, yet we also do find blatant contradictions between the sage Ben Sirah and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we can illustrate this briefly with, with one line. Sirach states, uh, and we'll quote verse 6 and 7 for context, the Most High hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. And that's in chapter 12 of Sirach. And if you know Jesus' works and of his teachings and of his writings, you know that Sirach contradicts the incarnate son's teachings. So other points of contention will be raised later, uh, such as historical issues, but we will move on. So this is all to say that the distinction between how the Hebrew canon and the Apocrypha were treated in the New Testament is significant to say the least, but again, we cannot miss that the Apocrypha had value for Jesus and the disciples. The use of these texts will continue into the post-Acts era, right? Um, but over time, we will see more and more claims of inspiration, and ultimately, 
Uh, what is difficult is seeing whether or not a citation of these works means that a given author sees the text as inspired. For example, the Didache, which is a book of Christian teachings that's very early in the Epistle of Barnabas, not, not the Barnabas of the New Testament, it's pseudo-Barnabas. They're, they're very early Christian documents that cite the Apocrypha. But do these citations mean that these authors viewed these texts as inspired or part of the Hebrew canon? Just as well, uh, Clement of Rome, who is considered to be a disciple of Paul, who wrote 1 Clement, also cites wisdom of Solomon in two instances and assumes that wisdom has truth to it. Again, does this mean that's canonical whenever there was a belief that all wisdom and truth came from God? And so we're still left wondering. Additionally, Polycarp, John's disciple, quotes Tobit and Irenaeus, accepted the additions to Daniel as canonical, and yet we must ask whether or not Irenaeus was aware that these were additions to Daniel. Origen and Clement from Alexandria would consider uh, wisdom and Sirach as scripture, while Tertullian from the West would consider uh, the wisdom of Solomon as scripture. And so some Christians did consider books scripture. Even uh, First Enoch was considered by some as uh, scripture because of its use in Jude, and one example of that is Tertullian. And so because of this, it is most helpful to approach this subject by looking at explicit canonical lists, where the collection of the Old Testament is listed. And we can begin with, um, I'm going to butcher this name, the Briagnos list of AD 100 and 150. It was copied in 1056. And if you access online, you can look at it. Um, and it follows the on the tale of Josephus's writing which again dated from 93-94. Now, this list is contained in a manuscript that contained both the Didache previously mentioned and the two epistles of Clement and the letters of Ignatius along with other compositions. In fact, the discovery of this manuscript was significant for the Greek text of the Didache. So while the Didache quotes the Apocrypha, as we mentioned just a second ago, this list becomes quite interesting because it's placed between 2nd Clement and the Didache. And within this list, we find, quote, the names of the books among the Hebrews, end quote. And the list contains 27 books with no mention of the apocryphal works. With that said, because it lists Esdras A and B, there is some mystery as to what this means, um, because the title of Ezra and Nehemiah becomes very convoluted and difficult to follow. And so let's, let's have a quick detour to, to discuss this. And, and I'm going to speak a little bit slower here. So overall... There have been four books with the name of Ezra or Esdras attached to them. Um, sometimes these are referred to as one, two, three, and fourth Ezras, or A, B, C, and D. I'm going to use the numbers because that's just how I typed it up. So sometimes the first two, first and second Ezra, is called Ezra and Nehemiah, while three and four are called first and second Ezras. Protestants and Catholics reject 3 and 4. So when we typically speak about rejecting 1st and 2nd Ezra's, we mean we reject 3rd Ezra or 4th Ezra, not Nehemiah and Ezra. And further complicating this discussion is that in Orthodox circle, 1st Ezra's is 3rd Ezra, as we understand it, yet for them, 2nd Ezra is Ezra and Nehemiah, which is R1 and 2. And again, there are also different positions on the status of 4th Ezra in Orthodox tradition. So ultimately, this becomes quite convoluted because if we read in a canonical list that Ezra A and Ezra B is accepted, that could mean Ezra and Nehemiah. Or it could mean Ezra and Nehemiah as Ezra A and Ezra 3 or 4 as Ezra B. So if that confused you, don't worry. It racked my brain for quite a while. I had to chart it out for myself. This is all to say that whenever we start talking about Ezra or Ezra's in these discussions, it becomes complicated. Um, but there's also another possibility in the list. Because um, Baruch and the Epistle of Jeremiah were typically under the name of Jeremiah, we don't know if these canonical lists that say Jeremiah include them or not. So that becomes another difficulty as we examine canonical lists. Uh, that said, we have in this first list 27 books with no mention of the apocryphal works explicitly. And so there is some mystery, but ultimately the explicit apocryphal works such as Wisdom, Ben Sirach, Tobit, Judith, uh, Maccabees, etc. are not included. 
Next, we can look to Melito of Sardis, who was in charge of the Church of Sardis in Western Asia Minor in the late 2nd century. According to the church historian Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History 4.262, Melito traveled to Palestine to ascertain the accurate account of the Hebrew canon. Now, in the book Extracts, uh, specifically in the preface, which dates to around AD 170, we read of an Old Testament canon that contains all the books of the Jewish canon except for Esther, while mentioning one book of Ezra's, which again could be Ezra and Nehemiah. The same issue with Jeremiah occurs, but we also find that Melito mentions a book called Wisdom, but we're not sure which book he's referring to. He mentions an extra book named Wisdom after Proverbs, and we're not sure if that's Wisdom of Solomon, which would be possible if Jews had been debating it. Following Melito, we come to Origin of Alexandria. In his letter to Africanus, he points out that he is aware of discrepancies between Hebrew and Greek texts of Daniel in a way that doesn't make sense in Hebrew, but only in Greek, uh, which would cause issues with its canonical status because it wasn't originally written in Hebrew, it was only written in Greek. But Origen, um, who was very critical, and he wrote, he made this volume called the Hexapla, which is really just by all accounts totally impressive. It's an edition of the Old Testament with six parallel versions. Four of them are in Greek, and he recognizes issues but he doesn't abandon the apocryphal works because they had been used in Christian circles. And so for him, usage seems to determine canonicity to some degree or another. Um, and so again, we're using canonicity lightly here, but ultimately we, we see that he did recognize those discrepancies. And in his commentary on the Psalter, uh, penned around 220 and 250, he points out that there are 22 books, quote, as the Hebrews transmit them, end quote, and he seems to accidentally omit the 12 minor prophets, though. Chronologically speaking, Eusebius, the church historian that we mentioned prior, mentions his own understanding of the canon. In his history of the church, he relays the Hebrew canon as recorded by Josephus, Melito, and Origen. And Eusebius notes that these books are incovenanted and undisputed. Further, he calls Melito Sardis's list a list of the recognized scriptures of the Old Testament and Origen's list the catalog of the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament. Following Eusebius, Cyril of Jerusalem writing in 350 lists the Jewish canon with no apocryphal books except Barak and the epistle of Jeremiah that he includes as part of Jeremiah. He will say that these are the books that are acknowledged or accepted while also recognizing that there are other books that he designates as second rank books. Athanasius, the great theologian of the East, who we learned about quite a bit in our Through Nicaea Sirius speaks of the canon in his festal letter, uh, the 39th to be exact, and his canon is only that of the Hebrew canon aside from Barak and the letter of Jeremiah, which are listed as appendices to Jeremiah. What is interesting about Athanasius is that he has this list making his canon clear, but he also cites the Apocrypha and designates it with, it is written. So that designation um, must be understood in accordance with his own testimony as to the status of the apocryphal works. And so sometimes you'll see someone say, well, Athanasius said it is written and then quotes the apocrypha, but in his own canonical list, he doesn't include the apocrypha. So that's significant. So let's do some rapid fire. Um, the Synod of Laodicea that was in sometime in 342 and 381 and canon 59 follows the Jewish canon with the additions to Jeremiah. Hilary Poiters writing sometime between 364 and 367 would follow the Jewish canon in a similar fashion as Athanasius, while commenting that some do add Tobit and Judith. Uh, the Mom Messin catalog, hopefully I said that correctly, of 365 follows the Jewish canon, except for Ezra, while also including two books of Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, and likely the Wisdom of Solomon and Sirach. The Apostolic Constitutions of 375 and 380 follow the Jewish canon plus Judith, Tobit, 3rd or 4th Maccabees, Psalm 151, and the Wisdom of Solomon, and perhaps Sirach, which does differ from the 16th century Council of Trent, as Trent excludes 3rd and 4th Maccabees and Psalm 151. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of our Cappadocians, again talked about in Through Nicaea, follows the Jewish canon except for Esther in his Carmina Theologica and 1112, while Epiphanius of Salamis in 376 notes three Old Testament lists that follow the Hebrew canon. And Epiphanius is significant in that he first breaks up the Old Testament canon into 27 books while noting that the Jews organize it as 22. Secondly, he also makes a distinction between his list 
as established in contrast to other books, including the Apocrypha. So he makes that clear designation of difference. Uh, he places Sirach and Wisdom in a disputed category rather than the Apocryphal category, which is also significant. But he still calls them useful and beneficial. Our last noteworthy list prior to reaching the two heavy hitters is Amphiliochus, where the list breaks up the Old Testament into 38 books, very similar to how we see them in the Old Testament today. So this is all to say there was a growing mixed bag on the subject, while two polarizing but more clear views would come to light in the 5th century. De Silva summarizes it as such. To use a gross oversimplification, if it were not for Augustine, these books might have been lost to the church forever. If it were not for Jerome, we might have never had distinguished them as a collection of books separate from the Old Testament. So that comes to Jerome. Jerome and his work on translating the Bible into Latin focus upon the Hebrew text of the Old Testament while studying under a rabbi in Palestine. He notes the differences in his work between the Greek and Hebrew text, and he makes a clear distinction between the Old Testament canon for doctrine and practice and those that were ecclesiastical and would be read in churches and used for edification, but not for the confirmation of doctrine. Not only that, but he moved them, the, that is the Apocrypha, to a separate section in the Latin Vulgate, which would be the predominant text in the West for centuries. One who came after Jerome, that is Rufinus, would follow Jerome's footsteps and denote a separate category for books that he called ecclesiastical books, that are books that are non-canonical but useful for the church. De Silva points out that there are various individuals that followed Jerome's position, such as Gregory the Great, uh, the Pope of Rome, uh, John of Damascus, and his exposition of the Orthodox faith, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, Hugh of St. Victor, Nicholas of Lyra, and Nicholas would be the main influence on Martin Luther whenever we get to the 16th century. Between the time of Jerome and the Reformation, we find a development of what is called the Glossa Ordinaria, which found its completion in the 12th or 13th century. Essentially, it was a collection of commentaries on the Bible, likened to a study Bible, essentially, and it would be very influential. The commentary, following Jerome, introduces each of the apocryphal works as not being part of the canon. Now, a contemporary of Jerome, and on the flip side of Jerome, is Augustine. Augustine opposed Jerome and followed the Greek text of the Septuagint because of its use in the East and his desire to remain united with the Eastern Church. While he affirmed and spoke of the canonicity of the Apocrypha, he also recognized that not all churches held this view. Augustine's impact and authority led to many more affirmations of this canon at local councils, such as Carthage, Hippo, uh, though his view was never universally held. At the Council of Hippo, we find a canon that follows Augustine's canon, which would be very close to the Catholic Council of Trent in the 16th century, except that it differed on Ezra because of the complications there. Basically, um, at Hippo, it affirms the Greek editions of Ezra, while Trent rejects them. So during the time of the Reformation, we have two leading Catholic scholars that are notable, Cardinal Jimenez and Cajetan, who would disagree with Luther theologically, but they also distinguished between the Hebrew canon and the Apocrypha, which were deemed useful for edification, but not doctrine. Cardinal Jimenez notes that the Apocrypha are not scripture in his preface of his famous polyglot, but um, they were allowed to be read for edification. He worked with lead scholars of his day, and his Bible was published by the authority and consent of Pope Leo X with that explicit mention of the Apocrypha being non-canonical. As for Cardinal Cajetan, I think that's how you say his name, he states that the church should follow Jerome on the canon and notes that there are two senses of canonical used in history, one being inspired in a rule for confirming matters of the faith, and the other being in the sense of edification for the faithful. He says that the Apocrypha are in the latter category and being received and authorized in the canon of the Bible for that purpose, as for edification. So the, these books are not inspired, but they're received in the canon as a means of edification, uh, which is a different status than Trent, which says it's deuterocanon in terms of being uh, chronologically accepted, not difference in authority. Another point worth mentioning is a... Roman Catholic scholar who would also duke it out with Luther himself, named Erasmus, who in his exposition on the Apostles' Creed and the Decalogue follows Jerome and Rufinus, stating that the church did not grant the same authority to the Apocrypha as the canonical scriptures. And of course, the events of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century brought back these debates that were, you know, earlier hashed out. And 
we have many Catholics and Protestants taking the positions of Rome, yet not uniformly enough in that some would accept some books while excluding others. Martin Luther is known famously for quote-unquote ripping out these books from the Bible, yet this is exaggerated as you can tell from our historical discussion. Luther was actually pretty positive towards the apocryphal books while not considering them canonical, and this can be seen in the fact that he actually translated them into German, and instead of placing them in the back of the Bible, he placed them in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. His view, like Jerome, is that they were useful but not esteemed like Scripture. The Swiss reformers uh, note the usefulness of these works so long as they were in line with the canonical Scriptures, and the English Reformation followed suit. You will actually find uh, the Protestant Confession statements following this idea, pointing out that while these books are not inspired, they are beneficial and worthy to be read for edification. In response to the Reformers, Rome at the Council of Trent reaffirmed the canon of the Old Testament list found um, in Augustine, essentially, or as one could say, the complex Council of Florence that was held in 1442 in Florence. Florence is an interesting council. Um, but ultimately, they affirmed the books of the Apocrypha as canonical. But because we have been using a broad category of Apocrypha, we should note that Trent excluded 3rd and 4th Maccabees, the Prayer of Manasseh, 1st and 2nd Esdras, and further... Uh, this is when the term deuterocanonical was used, meaning second canon. And again, they meant this in a chronological sense, not an authoritative sense. So here we can say that the Council of Trent is the first definitive or apparent authoritative settling of the matter of the Apocrypha for the Catholic Church. And while some will evoke the convoluted, elusive Council of Florence, the New Catholic Encyclopedia points out that according to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criterion of the biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church, and this decision was not given until rather late in the history of the church at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent definitively settled the matter of the Old Testament canon, and that this had not been done previously is apparent from the uncertainty that persisted up until the time of Trent, and that's on the canon in, again, the New Catholic Encyclopedia. So this is important because this means that according to you know, the Catholic Church, they're the ones who gave us the Bible, but they didn't know the Old Testament until the 16th century, while we can appeal to the Jewish canon that was affirmed for quite some time and restated by Jerome. So here it's worth pointing out that the local synods of Hippo and Carthage contradict Trent as well on the point of Ezra's, um, as the former see first Ezra's as the apocryphal editions of Ezra, and second Ezra's as the Ezra and Nehemiah, while Trent claims that first and second Ezra's are actually Ezra and Nehemiah. Back to that convoluted point on Ezra. Further, there's also discrepancies in the Apocrypha, quote-unquote, accepted by all claims when we compare the canon of the Orthodox and Catholic churches. Granted, uh, the Orthodox conception of canonization and canon in general is a bit unique, especially as it focuses on liturgy. Further, um, sometimes you'll have much made of the Sixth Ecumenical Council, that is Constantinople III, and the reception of Carthage's canon law, which seemingly adopts the Old Testament canon of Carthage that includes the Apocrypha. But what makes this convoluted is that this council also approves of the canon noted by Athanasius and Amphiliacus. I don't know if I even say that last one correctly. As you know, if you listen to my show, that's, that's, my, that's my quirk, mispronouncing things. But anyway, Athanasius and this other writer both reject the Apocrypha. And so um, instead of saying that this council was contradicting itself by adopting both these canon laws, we can say that this was less about inspiration and more about authoritative in the sense of being received to be read in the church, as many writers have relayed in our examination, including the Roman Catholic scholar Cajetan. So beyond this, Bibles contain the Apocrypha even in Protestant circles for some time until they simply just did not for whatever reason. I kind of wish they still did. You can still buy versions that have them, but for the most part, they've been taken out. However, in Protestant circles today, the place of the Apocrypha actually differs in terms of its being read in the place of litur uh, liturgical settings. In fact, I believe the Anglicans and Lutherans still read parts of the Apocrypha. So even then, one will have a hard time not receiving some type of education concerning the Apocrypha if they attend seminary. Uh, whenever you study the New Testament, you will learn about the Apocrypha writings and the writings of the intertestamental period. So there's not a big conspiracy, as progressives would like to say. So what's our conclusion for this episode? Protestants, despite the claims of Catholics, have solid grounds for following the tradition of the church found in Athanasius, 
Jerome, Gregory Nazianzus, ultimately the Jews, in rejecting the Apocrypha. The Jews knew their Bibles, and while they cannot determine the Christian text of the Bible, their say on the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew canon is significant. Between contradictions between the Apocrypha themselves, along with contradictions between the Apocrypha and the Old Testament, blatant historical errors that we'll get to later, even apologies from their own authors in regard to potential errors, you can see 2 Maccabees 15.39 for that, we can safely follow a tradition on the canon that is well documented in church history despite claims that we are merely following a lone, insane German monk named Martin Luther. Thus, we can say, we as Protestants hold to the Apocrypha as non-canonical in following the Hebrew canon, but we should not do so in a way that neglects the helpfulness of the Apocrypha as our forefathers did. D.A. Carson states, However strongly evangelicals, as part of the larger Protestant tradition, reject the Apocrypha as scripture, they can do no more dismiss the corpus from all consideration than they can write off the world and culture in which Christ was born and in which the New Testament was written. And there are critical questions that we as Protestants can ask regarding the canonical stats of the Apocrypha and other traditions, such as, why are there three traditions that accept the Apocrypha in different ways in their own collections lists? And again, on what authority then should we accept these writings not accepted by ones who gave us our inheritance of the scriptures, that is the Jews? On what grounds can we say with certainty, given these discrepancies between earlier collections and opinions, that Protestants are against the church and their denial of the Apocrypha? Who are you to say that we are abandoning the tradition of the church when we have a tradition of the church that affirms a Hebrew canon apart from the Apocrypha? As far as I'm concerned, the discussion between the Septuagint canon and the Hebrew canon cannot really continue until those who hold to the Apocrypha as canonical and who claim to have authority over the canon, i.e. the church, the magisterium, duke it out between themselves to determine who is correct in their own collection because both of them are making the same claims. From here... We can stand on the great tradition of the Jewish canon and reject the other traditions that accept the Apocrypha while still letting the influence, illusions, in the world of the Apocrypha inform our understanding of the one infallible inspired means of divine revelation, that which is God-breathed scripture, the 66 books of the Bible. So believe it or not, that was part one of our Apocrypha Episodes part two will discuss the Apocrypha's overview. We'll go through each book, summarize its contents, and we'll discuss its influence on the New Testament and some of its influence within the church. So that's a good place for you to kind of get an introduction to what the Apocrypha actually talks about. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it's a longer one, but God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Please prayerfully consider becoming a part of the support team at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the cure. Just